Our word this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. If you would stand as we read from God's word, I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then skip down to verse 9. Nothing wrong with the verses in between, but that's not where my focus is this morning. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. I ask for your blessing on it this morning. I ask for your help, Lord, as I preach it. I would do so faithfully. I would do so with clarity and that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand what you're saying in here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm returning to a theme that I've been, I think every time I've been with you, has been, there's been some sort of variation on it, but, but the significance of how we live and what kind of people we are. Think of what Peter writes at the end of Second Peter's second letter. As you see everything unfolding this way, as you see everything heading towards the judgment of the Lord, what kind of people ought you to be? There's a question that should be continually ringing in our heads. What does this look like? The challenge is that we're all in different stages of life. We're all in different places. And despite our many attempts to make this into a blanket thing for all of us, it just simply doesn't work. Which troubles us because it means that we have to work this out ourselves. We have to take what God has given us and understand what faithfulness looks like. How this applies to me and my situations. There isn't a book for that. Aside from the Bible. But that, is, that, is, that should be our concern, that should be our aim, that should be our purpose, is to understand what does this look like to live as God's people here. And, and this passage, um, to me, is one of the most central in that. With that in mind, just have you think for a moment, who have been the heroes for you in terms of giving shape to what it looks like to live as a Christian? We think of faithfulness. We think of character. You can think of achievements too, but I, I think achievements don't matter as much as those other two to the Lord. 
Who are those that stand in your mind? This last week has been a difficult one for us. We've lost three of them. We've lost not just elder statesmen of the PCA and, and of the church at large, but before the PCA, we've lost a father. Someone who was there from the very beginning. We've lost another who has been so instrumental in working through, this is how we live as light in the world. And with Stephen Smallman, in another sense, this is more towards the world at large as well as discipleship. But people who meant something to so many of us, not just us in the PCA, but, but, and not just in the church, but, but at the world at large. Um, I, I, am, I frequent Twitter. And it is strange to say that one of the most redeeming moments of Twitter has been the death of Tim Keller. It's, it's been fantastic and, and informative because here is someone who represents well what we're called to, which is so strange because any other time we so easily pick apart all the little details of what he believes. But, but he's shown us something. Each of these men has shown us something. Harry Reader's shown us something. Even Smallman's shown us something about how to live. In God's providence, he's taken them home. We feel that loss. I think death is, death reminds me a bit, I saw this uh, a little bit ago, a video of someone going through this, uh, let, let's, let's uh, a way to develop character is to do what the Nordic do and jump into an icy pool kind of carve a toughness groove in you. And you watch that whole thing happening, and it's just like, no, no doubt that does it. <laughs> no question that does something to you. Um, but but not, not quite as helpful as I'd, I'd like it to be. But with these, with these men, and there, there are many more that have gone before them, and we'll go after them. They, they showed something valuable here. They, they embodied something. It's right for us right now just to, to weigh their loss. Like, like that splash in the icy water, death has a way of sort of clearing the mind and reminding us of the realities of life. Regardless of what else is going on, death is real. Regardless of what else is, what else is going on, the clock is ticking for each of us. And one day it will be our turn. And day may be soon, it may be not. May not be us, but maybe people close to us. Reminds us to consider deeply what are the things that should be most important for us? What's our role in this? In fact, one of the thoughts that seems to be coming up again, again, I think this happens all the time, is this question of who's going to take their place? And the way that some put it, they make it seem as almost these people who the Lord's taken, Tim Keller, Stephen Smallman, Harry Reader, are irreplaceable. And I challenge that. I think that's the wrong way to look at that. They are irreplaceable in the sense that they are unique. But there's a danger there. I think there's a danger that comes out of a lack of understanding about the importance that God places on character. If we say they are irreplaceable as though no one can be like them, we are letting ourselves off the hook 
from what the Bible clearly expects of us, from what God clearly expects of us. Don't we do that? Don't, don't we use others as sort of avatars for our own godliness at times? We live capriciously. They, they act on our behalf. They'll be godly for us. They'll read the Bible for us. They'll witness for us. They'll pray for us so that I don't have to bother myself with that. Or, or maybe so that I don't have to try and fail at that because they're better at it than I am. I think it's the wrong way to look at it. I think it also betrays a lack of understanding about what's involved in developing character. It's hard, but it's not impossible. We look at what Paul's saying here. Go down the list. It's definitely difficult. No question about that. There's a difference between being difficult and being impossible. Again, why would God call us to this and not just certain people? Or last, the, the statement of their irreplaceability betrays a lack of heart or courage in us. That I don't, I don't think anybody likes to be called a coward. And I think like pride, we, we, we tend to think of it only in one form, but it can take many forms. But, but a, a, a lack of willingness to step up, maybe out of a, a sense of modesty, there are better people than me to do it. But if not us, then who? Who will take their place? And it doesn't have to be in New York City or in Birmingham, Alabama or the headquarters of World Harvest Mission. Why not here? Why not you? Why not me? Why not us step up to fill their place? It's our turn now. Their death is a handing over a baton to us, isn't it? Not to us individually, but to us as a church. Why would we shrink back? What are we protecting ourselves from? What are we waiting for? Time to take heart. With this in mind, I want to go on and consider a little bit more a couple other things. I think, and I don't know how, I, I come from an evangelical background, so I christened in a Lutheran church, Assemblies of God, Foursquare, Presbyterian Church, numerous non-denominational churches, Evangelical Free, and, and finally PCA. Um, long and winding road. So lots of stuff behind, lots of stuff I'm still, you know, working out anger issues and things like that along the way. But, but there are things that come with that, that there are, there are ways of thinking that I think I, I'm becoming more aware of, especially as I disciple others. And there, there's three, three in particular that I just want to highlight. And I'm going to assume that these are not necessarily evangelical characteristics, but maybe human characteristics that we have to, to identify and figure out how to deal with. First is, when I look at this, these things that God calls us to, that Paul is calling the Romans to, that, that are ours as well, first is the sense of, I can't do this that I, I think comes out of a confusion of godliness with godlike perfection. That distinction makes sense? Yes, Jesus said to the Pharisees, be perfect as my Father is in heaven is perfect. But he said that to Pharisees who believed that they actually were. We know, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a right understanding here, we will never be perfect at this, but that should not be discouragement from pursuing these things. Nor is it an excuse. 
We, we have to bring back this concept in discipleship of failure. It, it's godly to fail. Not ungodly. Blemishes on your record are not sins necessarily. They're opportunities to learn and grow out of. So to say, I can't do this is, one, it stands in the face of the examples of people that we've just lost, but, but it's presented here again to us. We must do this. We must learn how to do this. If God is for us, then it must be possible to do what he commands us. So do you have that confusion in you? Do, you? do you look at these things and say, I just can't do this. I, it's too hard. It's too difficult. What God, the, the, the degree of excellence that God requires, I can never meet. So why try? That, that is wrong. That is false. Second, second way of thinking. And, and this comes, you'll, you'll probably recognize some of the, the family history of this one. I don't need to do this. Because to do so would be to add to what Christ has done. I don't need to be more than this. I don't need to you know, work this way down the list, to, to love genuinely, to abhor what is evil. Yes, those are good things. I should outdo one another, outdo one another in showing brotherly affection, showing honor to each other, not be slothful and zeal. But I don't need to do that because that's not where my salvation rests. Christ has saved me. That's where I rest. It'd be great if I could do these other things, but it's not necessary for me. Which again is not true. It's true in a sense. God through Jesus has done it all, but, but that is now comes with it the understanding that we belong to Him. And He sends us out to be a particular kind of people. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live to God. It's not adding to salvation. It's showing forth the effects of being saved. The effects of being longing to God. Of knowing Him and loving Him. And seeking to do His will. And there's this last one that ties in with what we talked about earlier. That I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid to do this because I'm afraid of pride. I'm afraid of pride within myself. There's a, there is in evangelicals in general this oversensitivity to pride that stops a lot of things. I don't want to go to seminary because then I would learn things that other people don't know and then I would be in danger of becoming proud. I don't want to start something because I'm in danger of becoming proud. I want to make sure that in everything I say, I, I say, yes, I started this church, but not I, but the Lord. Yes, I made this cup of delicious coffee for somebody, yet not I, but the Lord. And there's this, this sort of strange, pious humility that I think is not real humility. It's a misunderstanding that keeps us from doing anything. Because we're afraid of ourselves. But wh where does that lead, for one? Practically speaking, that leads nowhere. Because anything can lead to pride, right? You take pride in the fact that you're here this morning. You can take pride in the fact that I'm here this morning. You take pride, there's so many different ways in which we could take pride over the silliest things. I could go out there and be thankful and admire once again my Subaru. I love my car. And that could become a stumbling block, right? What on earth do we do? Withdraw into a cave, which even there we could take pride in our cave. There's just, there is no escaping the frailties and the weirdness of our own heart, right? So rather than running, we have to face that. 
We, we have to go forth in boldness with God, what God's called us to, right? And confess pride when it comes up. Because God has us pursue these things together, pride will come up, but also gives us the laboratory, if you will, to deal with that pride. One of the things that's interesting, I don't know how much you followed Tim Keller's life. Um, on the one hand, to me, just an exemplar of so many things, and that when you hear he and Kathy, his wife, talk about their life, Kathy's very quick to point out his clay feet. Yeah, he's a great guy, but you know, he still has a lot of growing up to do. Which is right. That, that's, that's a great picture. We, we, are, we are these creatures in conflict between being capable of amazing things, of great things, uh, of great achievements in character and, and churches and, and all sorts of stuff. And yet we have feet of clay, but we're afraid to let that know. Let that be known. That's the fear we have to deal with as we go forward. And so I want to turn to this passage and deal with it more in depth. But, but I want to look at it from this standpoint. I want, I want to resist the tendency to look at this as a list of things to print out and put on your fridge or bathroom mirror with check marks behind it, beside it and say, how am I doing today? Yep, got that one, got that one done. I, I want you to see this as a vision, a kind of person, a kind of people that Paul is spelling out, that he is he's putting out. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by this by a quote I came across this last week that Okay, I'll do it. I, I'm going to mangle the French pronunci pronunciation, but I just love this name. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the author of The Little Prince. Uh, came across this quote last week that, that had to do with something else, but, but I think is so true for the Christian life, for following Christ, for character, that, that I think reflects what Paul is saying here. He said this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Can I challenge you as we look at this passage? This is not how to build a ship. This is look at the sea, look at the wonder that's out there. Would it be great to go out onto that sea and see what happens? See what we will find, the stories that we'll tell, the adventures that we'll have. That, that's how we're wired, isn't it? We're not wired to be awestruck by shopping lists. We're wired by the banquets that we can make out of that food. This is not a step-by-step -step approach of how to be a Christian. This is a vision of this is what it looks like to be a person. This is why, again, these people that we were remembering this week are so important because they showed us not just how to live, but what a life. What an enviable life. I want to live like that. I want to die like that. I think that is what Paul's getting at here. So, what is this life? What is this life that we're to build? Go back to the first couple of verses here. They're summed up in, in two, two primary commands. First, Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice. 
underlining that, that whole statement, whatever else you do with that, that picture that he draws, is, is the fact that we belong to God. We are His. That is objectively true in at least three ways. One by, one by virtue of the fact that we were made by Him. Creation entails ownership. You write a book. You write a song. You build a house. How easily do we go to, that's mine. That belongs to me. How much more can God who knit us together, who breathed us into existence, can claim us as belonging to Him? That's the problem of sin. We reject that. We, we, we are seeking to negotiate a different ownership plan. We want to renegotiate the contract. But we belong to Him because we are His creatures. We belong to Him, secondly, because we have been purchased by Him. With the blood of Christ, that, this, this meal that we will celebrate later brings with it that component of He died for us. Fascinating, isn't it? How easy it is to walk away from this table and say, now, what do I want to do with my life? And all the myriad of choices that we live, we acknowledge it and can turn away, such as our weakness. But this is inescapably true. This is objectively true. If we are in Christ, we belong to Him completely. Our minds, our hearts, our lives, our possessions, our future, our past, everything he owns. And then finally, it's true because the death of Christ cleared the way for us to be adopted. We are not mere property. We are sons and daughters. We don't just owe Him our obedience. We owe Him our love. Our devotion. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice because you are His. And that's, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of frowning faces, which I think is Northwest for you're with me. But that's good news, right? What's the alternative? Not I'm free, but I'm doomed. Why am I doomed? Because I am not God. I cannot, I cannot do or sustain or stop anything. On top of which, my rebellion against the God who made me also makes me a candidate for destruction. And that's what God saved me from. It's a, it's a good ownership. It's a good belonging. It's a good owing. But then this, re this reality is also meant to be expressed in how we choose to live. We must live as living sacrifices. Calvin has this great motto Came almost kind of a, a brand, if you can talk about in those terms, uh, which read, My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's not just, reject, not just acknowledging a reality, it's a, what's the word? It's a complying with that reality. I see what you have made of me, and I live accordingly and all the different choices that he faced over the course of his life, all the different choices that we make over the course of our life. All of me, all of my life, 
dedicated to worship of and service to Him. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. And second, he says, second command he gives is a little bit further down. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Our lives are, be, are to be distinct from the world. It begins, first of all, with how we think. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How we think. And again, I, I know I've said this before, but it just bears repeating. This is not simply about changing our evaluation of certain moral questions. These things are now wrong for me. It's changing everything. I thought God was like this, but He's actually like this. I thought God was like someone just greater than my greatest understanding or greatest imagination of a being. What, what, what Luther talked about is the theology of glory. I work from the ground up and see who's the greatest possible being I can imagine, and God's just infinitely better than that. And Luther says, actually, what tells us more about God is what happens on the cross. There's your God. Bleeding and dying. The point of which is, we don't know who He is. Our, our understanding, our thinking, our whole framework is worldly. And it affects everything. It affects how we understand love. It affects how we understand faith. It affects how we understand our enemies. It affects how we understand everything. We can gin up some good things along the way, but our whole framework is wrong. It needs to be reshaped by the Word. Otherwise, loving your enemies is just miserable, right? Because <laughs> it's so easy, if, if we don't understand that, if we don't recognize that, that to love our enemies requires a complete re-engineering of how we think about people, then we will do it piecemeal at best. And we will work our way through the list of enemies or just broaden that to opponents of any sort or people who have hurt us, we'll go through that list and immediately start assigning categories to people I'm willing to do that to and people I'm not. People who deserve it and people who don't because we're worldly in our thinking. That's not how Jesus acted. It's not what God shows us. We need to be retrained. That begins with how we think and then it moves on to how we make choices in our life. The, the, the actions of practical worship. I need to think differently. This world is about making a name for yourself and accumulating money and making sure that you're safe and secure. Keeping the people close to you that you love and want to be with. Developing community that's serving you. We don't realize all the different ways in which we are establishing ourselves at the center and do that even as Christians because we need to be transformed. that generosity is not some sort of a faith tax. It's, the, it, it's part of our circulatory system as people. A new kind of people. And then, and then finally, not just in the choices we make for ourselves, but in how we treat others. We're to be distinct from the world, different from the world, act differently. How? Well, in verses 3 through 8, which we're not going to look at today, by giving ourselves to the church. To, to love and participate in the church, even there, I think it needs to be changed. It, it's, 
It's too cliche to talk about the consumerism of the church as far as I'm concerned. But let's just call it what it is. It is more natural for us to come here because we're hurting, because our needs, our hurts, our longings, our desires just naturally gravitate to the fore at the expense of everybody else. That's just how we are. The church doesn't confront that and say that's wrong. The church says, yes, but God meets what you have and there are others here who need you. I don't have space for that. I don't have reserves for that. I don't have patience for that. God supply. We need each other. We're to give ourselves to the church. We, we may not like the church, but we're called to love the church. And that's really, really important. But, but where, where I want to spend a little bit more time thinking about here is that we're being distinct, not just in how we relate to the church, but in how we relate to each other, all, all of those around us. Loving each other genuinely. Love genuinely. What does that mean? I mean? It definitely means it has to be sincere, for one, but even that raises the question. It, it forces us to ask, how do I love? What do I love for? When I think about loving other people, what is, what is the end game? What am I really aiming towards? What sustains it? Is a good way to test it. Do I love like that? I, I'm, and this is, I mean, what's, what's helpful for all these things is that I can, my mind is populated with example after example of each of these. I don't know if you guys have read Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. But her purpose is to love her neighborhood, to, to bring a sense of community to this neighborhood so that they budget fairly significantly in their household budget money for food and the ability to house anyone who comes. They put a, they put a table and some chairs out in front and just... People walk by, come on in. They embrace that. And the people around them feel that warmth. They feel that genuineness. It drives me crazy because it's like, are you kidding? Budget that. I, got, I can't fit that in. That's costly. And yet they see things differently where the cost is worth it. Outdo each other in showing honor. Outdoing each other in showing honor recognizing those before ourselves, competing with each other not for our top spot, but to praise and acknowledge those around us. Zeal, fervency. That one's a hard one for us, I think, especially in reform circles, because that's, that's the province of charismatics. And you know where zeal and fervency lead. Craziness, who knows? So, so we have the zeal of the Stoic. I am excited. Intensely excited. In fact, I'm so excited I can burn a hole through you with my eyes right now. Why? What are we afraid of? Looking foolish? Looking silly? Looking like them? David... David took off at least his outer clothing in such a way that was embarrassing for his wife and danced before the Lord. Yeah, I'm doing that in my mind. <laughs> but, but there's a freedom offered there if we see it the right way. 
I'm, now I'm wondering what's going to happen the rest of the service, actually. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> this could be an interesting closing couple sets. But <laughs> Hopeful. Hopeful. Um, sorry. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Hope. 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 Not just hope for me. Not just hope for the, the experience out there. But hope for those around us. Love always hopes. Love bears all things. Hopes all things. Doesn't keep a record of wrong. There's a sort of willingness to take a risk with Christian hope that is different than the kind of hope that is worldly. I hope this turns out okay somehow. God, if you're listening. It's not a hope that's born in patience. It's a hope that we're able to kind of push things off on God and focus on other things. But this is a meteor kind of hope. We stand in and bear with each other even when we don't see a good ending yet. The tunnel has not gotten to the point where light is visible. Prayerful Contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How, how is it possible to do that when they hurt you? I mean, here, here again, I just want to point back to the transforming of our minds. Because when someone attacks us, what do we feel? Pain. What's our response to pain? We want to inflict pain back. Right? We want justice. We want what's right. We want them to feel a little bit of what they've Im- inflicted on us. Bless them. What on earth are they going to learn from me blessing them? Who's going to hold them accountable? How can I do that? I'm responsible in some way for this. I might be the last one who stops them from whatever self-destructive path they're on. How can I bless? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's, a, there's a, again, a, a costliness to that. Because those times of rejoicing, those times of weeping, just do not, are not easily schedulable or fit in with our own agendas. They're time-consuming. They're energy-consuming. What about me? What about the things I'm experiencing? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I mean, Paul's previewing what we looked at last week. That, that tendency to, in, in clinging to the things that we are convinced of, convicted of, and looking at others who don't share those as though we are somehow better. And we don't, we don't say those words. We don't think that way. But there are many different ways to look down on other people than just saying, I'm great and they're not. Isn't there? The way that we give patience with certain people. The way that we entertain people. The, the amount of warmth that we're willing to express to one person versus another. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice the intentionality of all these things. These are are not just general things that you lock in and cruise. These are things that, that every single moment where something comes up, where you have 
You have an array of options of how you are going to respond. There's a mindfulness here, first of all, who am I? I belong to the Lord. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm his representative. I am set as light here in this world. How I respond matters. But we see people doing it, don't we? I saw Keller doing this. I saw Harry Reader doing this. I've heard of Stephen Smallman doing this. I've heard of others doing this. This is possible. It sounds tedious at first. But, but any sort of discipline is tedious at first. But as you become accustomed to it, then it becomes a part of you, right? I, mean, those are, I don't know if you've noticed this. I, this is something that struck me. When we lived in, we lived in Japan... Um, and 20 years ago, 24 years ago. And at some point, we had to get a car. And so I've been, at that point, I've been driving for 20, 25 years. And to suddenly be confronted with the fact that I have to virtually relearn how to drive a car and all that goes into driving a car. I had forgotten all those, I've got to look left and right and center, I've got to look at the dials, I've got to, I've got to make sure I'm shifting, I've got to put the clutch in. The, the amount of stuff that we do instinctively after time is remarkable. In fact, we, we seem to forget that when we teach our kids how to drive. Or we're very aware of it, we don't want them to drive. But, but we had to learn the hard way. We had to learn, and, and, and over time we, learned, we gained the capacity to be able to do those things without even thinking about it anymore. What if that's possible here? That at the start, it's going to be hard. It's like, what do I do in this situation? I need to remember who I am. I need to remember what it means to live as a Christian. I need to see how I'm supposed to respond differently than the way that I want to respond right now. God, help me. Help me shine His light. Help me honor You. Help me love these people. This is hard. I think as we purpose to do this, we'll become more a part of us over time. Pursuing what is honorable, peaceable, seeking to overcome evil with good. I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, in, in saying this, I'm going to be saying it. I don't think it needs to be said, but it does need to be said. There are many examples out there among our peers that are just the exact opposite of this. In fact, it's shameful to us as Christians that we, we embrace or applaud anybody who falls short of this simply before, in exchange for speaking the truth or being bold. That costs our witness to do that. We cannot compromise the kind of character that we're called to have. We may not have the ambition to make a mark in the world, but we are called to make a mark in the world by the way that we live. You may not build churches or schools you may not do great things, you may not save thousands of souls, but your life is important and valuable and meaningful and you are meant to live a certain way so that when your time is over, you will have left something behind. Is that how we're thinking? That's, that's the how. I want to bring us back to the vision. Not, not what do we need to do, but what is the bigger picture here? And this is where Paul starts off this whole section. The mercies of God. <laughs> this, is, this is what locates us. This is what helps us find where we are on the map in order to live like this. 
Consider what God has done. Look at the mercies of God. And of course he's looking backwards, at what, looking back at what God has done, at his, at his mercy stemming all the way back to the very beginning when Adam and Eve disobeyed. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And yet the promise of, a, of one who would come from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, where did that one come from? They were supposed to be done. What did Eve or Adam do to deserve that grace? Nothing. If God held His Word and did not show mercy, there would no, there'd be nothing beyond Genesis chapter 3 and no one to read it. And that initial step is a incredible display of God's mercy. Not giving us what our sins deserved. But through that, making a way to save us. To redeem us. To bring us back. To make us what we were meant to be. Look what He's done for you. All the things that we either inwardly or outwardly bow our head in shame before, before God and other is paid for. You're free. That record's dealt with because God loves you. Because Christ's death is sufficient. There's no animosity. There's nothing that stands between you and the Almighty God anymore. And He loves you and he delights in you consider that mercy once you are not a people now you're the people of god once you were without a name without hope now you have a name now you have a hope you've been put in an entirely different place now because of the mercy that god has shown on you and has shown on me and has shown on us look around you at how god continues to show his mercy and kindness towards you we can, we can accept what he's done for our past, but, but I don't know about you, but I still struggle with the stuff I continue to do. How long is he going to put up with me? How is he going to change me in the way that I need to be changed when I've lived my life this way for so long? Is it possible? Why does God continue to put up with my prayers? Why does God continue to do good things towards me at all? Why does he give me the blessings that he does? Because he's merciful. Because he's kind. Those are the cords that he uses to draw us to him. Look at how God has shown mercy through his people, his faithful people around us. Again, think of the people that have gone before us, the great cloud of witnesses, and what their lives show. What do they show? Sure, they may show something of the greatness of humanity, but more than that, they show the mercy of God. Because He sustained them. He inspired them. He equipped them. He gave them the resources they need and the opportunities they need to shine as lights. And they did shine because of the mercy of God. Consider that mercy. You think of what He's called us to. Consider how God then, through His mercy, could use us to build our lives like this. To build our families, to build our churches, our businesses, our communities, through which His mercies would be evident to others. 
Catch the vision for what God is doing here. See that over all this is this great story of the mercy of God in which He's now called us to be a part of, both as the receptors of that mercy as well as the displays of that mercy. That's what Peter says, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why do we live this way? Because of that. We get to be part of this bigger thing that God is doing, and not just simply being good people. Or different people. We're part of a display of God's excellencies that the world will not be able to escape and may actually be the means by which they likewise are saved and join in the display. Don't you want to be a part of that? Isn't that be amazing to see how God might use that? This little church, our little lives, Mount, what on earth can you do with Mount Vernon, Washington? grow lots of tulips. A lot. A lot. If we are willing to trust Him. To, to take in what He's given us and then see what He sent us out at. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank You again for Your Word. I, there's a meaningful life or there's a, there's a, not just the challenge of how to live, but the, the invitation be something greater, grander, that, Lord, I, I pray you would give us a yearning for or, or relocate our yearning towards this great call to be your people. Not, not, not in some objective, invisible to the eye sense, but visible, tangible, loving, gracious, kind, different, gracious, generous, forgiving. Being the kind of people we were meant to be. Being the, being the kind of people that are, are truly remarkable. That, that show the handiwork of your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up to this. That we would begin or, or continue in this process, this pursuit of living as your people, taking these things on. Lord, help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be held back by, by some wrongful sense of, of humility or shame, but with clear eyes, Lord, that we will look to what you've called us to, look to what you've given us, and with whole hearts, with, with, with clear eyes, Lord, they would pursue you and seek to be these kinds of people to be useful in your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.